I'm your host, Brittany McDowell, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of our PAC Politics Podcast, if you don't know. Our podcast is brought to you by our organization, our United Resource PAC. We are a tax-exempt political organization. On today's show, we are going to get into the second part of our five-part series that we are going to be doing over the next few episodes where we take a deep dive into the American Rescue Plan. And on this second part of the five-part series, we're going to be discussing how negotiations and budgets have actually brought us to this newly proposed COVID legislation. And if you don't know, Democrats, they narrowly, and I mean super, like by one vote narrowly, they passed a resolution that is putting them in a pretty good spot because of the passage of that resolution. They're now allowed to pass our next stimulus relief package without Republicans. And it's through this process called reconciliation. So if we're going to talk about reconciliation, we can't talk about it without mentioning this move to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. So that's what we've got. We've also got a resource to help you check the status of your most recent economic impact payment if you have yet to receive it. That is our show for today. Let's go ahead and jump right in. You're listening to another episode of Our Pack Politics Podcast. It's about that time for the next episode. Brittany. Just wanted to shoot you a quick reminder. Look in the description box of this episode and you can find a link to our website. On our website, you can find our latest blog posts. You can find our contact information. If you even want to make a contribution, you can go over there and do that as well. You can find out the policies we are looking at and targeting as an organization. You know, I say all the time that we are a tax-exempt political organization. If you want to know more about that, again, go on over to our website, our-pack.com, where you can find out everything you want to know. You can do everything you want to do. We will gladly, gladly, gladly welcome you on our website with open arms. Again, check out our website in the description box below. So this, again, is the second part of a five-part series that we are doing where we dive deep into the American Rescue Plan. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say the American Rescue Plan, I'm talking about that $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package that has been proposed by our now president, Joe Biden. So today in discussing that, we are going to specifically look at how negotiations and budgets have, again, brought us to the point where we now have this newly proposed COVID legislation. I said in part one of this series, and I'm going to say it again, that 
you have to know where we have been to really understand where we're going. And so uh, this is going to make sense, you know, again, where we're going when we consider where we have been as it relates to COVID legislation. Now, before I get into that, considering the title of this episode, I feel highly compelled to define what I mean when I say the N word and the B word, because I know you guys probably saw the title and said, oh my gosh, Brittany has lost her everlasting mind. I have not. <laughs> Although, you know, sometimes I kind of question, but I can guarantee you I have not as far as I know. Uh, and because I have not lost my mind, the N word and B word probably do not mean what you assume they mean. N word here is negotiations. The B word is budgets. So we're going to talk about the N's and the B's and not the ones you're probably thinking about. <laughs> okay. That said, let's, let's jump right in. Let's start with the N's. <laughs> negotiations. And so when we think about negotiations specifically related to COVID, right? They've been kind of a catch-22. They've been pretty eventful, but at the same time, they've been rather uneventful um, for the most part, right? You've had, we've had a lot of talk. We've had a lot of placation. We've had a lot of, you know, stumping around and demanding and clamoring and yelling and shouting for barely anything to have been done over the last year, especially we when we consider uh, the gravity of the problem and we consider how long we've been dealing with it, right? The amount of actual help that the American people have seen, not so much considering in the totality of what we're dealing with. So for a lot of people, when I talk about negotiations, they're like, oh, you know, ugh. really like, Brittany, do you know what the American people have been dragged through over the last year? Yeah, it's it's been absolutely horrible. But I want to ask you a question. When we consider where we've been with negotiations and how awful they've been, are people rightly justified in kind of assigning the same negative feelings about negotiations to future negotiations for COVID relief? Um, when we look at the American Rescue Plan, if I say third stimulus package and COVID relief, what are you likely to feel? Are you likely to feel a sense of uh, disdain? Are you likely to feel anger? Are you likely to feel any negative emotion? Yeah, probably. But, but is, is that right? Is that right to associate those feelings with the American Rescue Plan? Some people might say, well, no, because, you know, what we've seen before was not only under a, a previous president, it was under the control of previous congressional, it was under the control of uh, different congressional leadership, right? It was Mitch McConnell, who was essentially the big man on the block calling the shots. Well, you have that camp of people who are like, no, let's give people the benefit of the doubt. We can't, you know, assume that the negotiations going forward are going to be, you know, bad and we can't really feel negative. Let's feel positive vibes. But then on the flip side, you have people who say, well, look, have you not paid attention to what's gone on to this point with this current stimulus package? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about 
is the $600 or excuse me, $600 billion proposal that we have seen from the other side, right? Now, I will be fair as I, you know, like to be, um, we haven't really seen true negotiations like we had last congressional session, right? Last session, you know, we had seen, you know, people going to Pelosi's office and Mnuchin's office and, right, they were just all around going from office to office claiming, oh, we're locking ourselves in for an hour and we're going to talk and we're going to hammer it out for the American people. That's what we saw last congressional session. This congressional session, really the extent of negotiations that we have seen was when a group of Republican senators called for a meeting with the president and they got it and they met with him and they talked, but was it a formal negotiation? No, it it wasn't. It was really a, a forum for them to be able to be heard by the president. Um, and they wanted to be heard because they wanted to present their counter proposal. Again, their $600 billion package. Uh, they wanted to counter his $1.9 trillion plan. Okay. We're not talking about all Republicans. We're talking about 10 Republicans here. So again, have we really seen true negotiations? I'll let you be the judge of that. Who are the main group of people that you probably know, right? Um, I can guarantee you, you don't know all 10 of the Republicans that had this meeting. So I'm not going to go off rattling this list with you scratching your head being like, what the heck? There are three people who I can guarantee if you don't know all three, you know at least one of the three. You have Susan Collins of Maine. Actually, four people that I can guarantee you probably know. Um, Susan Collins, you probably know and have heard of Lisa Murkowski. She's in Alaska. Uh, Mitt Romney of Utah, if you have not heard of him, crawl back under your rock and network him out, right? Uh, and then you have Rob Portman of Ohio. Again, out of those four, you've got, you have to, if you, again, Romney, <laughs> right? If you don't know who Romney is, Lord help you, right? So, this wasn't some like rinky dink group of people like you've never heard about. Like I said, you've at least probably heard of one of these people and these Republican senators, what they did, like I said, they had their meeting, but then in addition to that, what they did was they sent a letter. Okay. Um, actually it was prior to that. They sent a letter where they said that not only did they want to kind of negotiate, but they said, they wanted to do it, and I'm quoting here, they said they wanted to do it in the spirit of bipartisanship and unity, right? And I can imagine that if you could hear the, the letters come off the page, it would sound exactly like that. Mr. President, we want to do this in the spirit of bipartisanship and unity. And they'd be looking at the, the American flag, you know, and just draped in all their patriotism because they want to unify the American people. They want to be bipartisan. Hmm. Let me tell you something. In case you don't know, negotiations, there's, when it comes to them, there's, there's a very important rule. And I've mentioned kind of my experience, one of my experiences with this rule before. But the key thing that I want you, e even as we talk about the American Rescue Plan, there's something that I want you to remember about negotiations because at some point in your life, 
if you negotiate, which I probably think you will, because even if it's not like this hardcore negotiation that you're probably thinking about in some capacity in your life, you are going to negotiate. Right. But here's the thing. Here's here's the deal. In the words of our president. Right. Here's the deal. Uh, When it comes to negotiations, the person who can walk away has the most power. Let me give you a quick little story. I'm not going to go too off on a tangent. I'll give you an example of that. I was at a car dealership uh, with my mother. And um, with the exception of her most recent vehicle, I think I've pretty much always, you know, been there negotiating and helping. But anywho, so I was there with her. This was like the one before the last, I don't know. Uh, and we were there at the table and, you know, we were talking and getting the numbers down and get the papers and they're going and doing And Mind you, this wasn't like a finance deal. This was a cash transaction deal. So you have a, you know, cash got a little bit more, a lot more wiggle room to kind of, you know, negotiate because they want that dollar dollar bill y'all. Um, so we were at the table and, you know, papers were flying and numbers were flying and eyelids eyelids going and you looking across the table they're looking back at you and I told my mom I said trust me mom mind you it was a car that she really really liked they didn't know this because I told her I said don't you go to this car a lot you know being all happy and impressed and ooh, I, mm-mm, keep a neutral face the entire time right get your poker face keep it on and it better be good so I told her when we were sitting down at the table, I didn't like the numbers and neither did she. I said, mom, you got to trust me. She, because she liked the vehicle, she kind of wanted to settle for the numbers that were being presented to her. But I knew that we could do better, right? I knew that they could do better. And again, I told her, mom, trust me. Mind you, this isn't some, you know, custom car. You know, it was a, I think it was a, uh, gosh, what was it at the time? It was a uh, Chrysler 200, right? Not a, not some souped up, super expensive car or nothing like that, right? So um, I said, mom, trust me. And I looked across the table and I told the, the, the salesman, I said, you know, um, I appreciate your time and I thank you for the offer, but unfortunately this doesn't work for us. And so I don't want to waste your time or ours. And, you know, essentially ended the deal. So he thought, so I thought, I told my mom, you have to trust me, not because I necessarily knew that things would turn out a certain way, but because I knew that these aren't the only people who can give us what we want, right? I was willing to walk away. And I conveyed that to my mom, mom, you have to be willing to walk away, right? You cannot be super attached. Going somewhere and I'm almost done here. So we did what we did, got up, we're walking out, got to the car to leave the lot. I was driving, backed out. What do you know? Sam the salesman, okay, it's not his name. I clearly don't remember. It was years ago. I don't even remember what really happened last week, right? Uh, Sam the salesman, so we'll call him at this point, came running out the doors. Miss McDowell, Miss McDowell, Miss McDowell. Uh, I, I think we can. I think we can work something out. I think we can work, work something out. Long story short, we pulled back into the space. I ended up leaving after all the stuff was signed, and my mom drove off in her new car. Why? Because she was willing to walk away. Now, maybe I don't know if she would have had quite the willpower if I had not been there, <laughs> but. Ultimately, she was willing to walk away. And that's what you have to do 
in any negotiation because that is what gives you the power. Brittany, why the heck are you telling us this? What does this have to do with anything? Well, again, remember, these Republicans, they wanted to negotiate in the spirit of bipartisanship and unity, right? And when you consider that the person who can walk away has the most power, I want you to be advised of the fact, if you don't know, that several times in the past, Republicans have walked away. And I'm not just talking about, you know, when it comes to COVID legislation. I'm talking about key things, COVID, Obamacare, right? Tax proposals, budget, whatever it is, name it. Republicans have been willing to walk away. And this is what has given them political power. Brittany, what the heck are you talking? Think about it. I want you to think about, again, think about negotiations from last year. Think about the ish show that it was and what we saw. What we saw was a Senate leader who was unwilling to let anything come up for a vote. What we saw was when certain groups of senators, House members, all these people were willing to come together and negotiate on a bipartisan level, certain people were really just willing to walk away and act like it didn't happen. Consistently, again, whether it's been on COVID or, heck, even look at what happened with Obamacare. We call it Obamacare, but when you consider what under uh, the Obama administration, what they really wanted, what Democrats really wanted in terms of the single payer system, and they really wanted to revolutionize healthcare for Americans. When you consider all of that, and you consider what we actually ended up with, and you consider the fact that we had a record number of filibusters starting with that Congress, and you consider that Republicans said, we're not going to move unless you put this in, unless you do this, unless you do this. Did any of them end up signing for it? Did any, did they vote for it? No. Republicans have a history of specifically, again, it doesn't matter the issue. They have a history of coming to the negotiation table, negotiating table. I want you to literally envision a table, right? You have the Democrats walk up, you have the Republicans walk up. Democrats come up, they're willing to just give away the house, right? You want our soul, you want the refrigerator, you you know, you want my shoes, you want my drawers, like they're willing to just give it away. They don't even they don't even freaking put up a fight. Well, they haven't to this point, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Republicans, they've consistently come to the table, made all these demands and said, "If you want me to do this, you better to do this. I'm willing to walk away." Democrats have capitulated pretty much giving them everything or a majority of what they wanted to where in, what you end up with is literally nowhere recognizable to what Democrats actually want. Again, this is on several issues, not just with COVID or Obamacare, but taxes, education, name the issue. And so it is, right? But ultimately what ends up happening is Republicans walk away. This is what gives them political power. It's not that they are some like super majority of the American people. It's not that 
all Americans agree with him on all these issues that they consistently to they consistently win hand over foot time after time after time. That's not it. What it is is the fact that again, they are willing to walk away. So this gives them political power. Now, I hope this isn't your first episode that you've ever listened to, right? Um, first and foremost, if it is, you need to stop right now. Go. You don't even necessarily have to listen to the introduction I did last week introducing this new series, but at least go back and listen to part one because all of these parts are going to tie in together at the end. And I don't want you to get to the end and be like, what the heck is this person talking about, right? Um, and, and I just want you to have that information. But if I would hope that, you know, you might take a listen outside of this series. If you have, you might remember that some of the recent episodes we've done, um, they actually tie into this. It's amazing how, and, and I promise you, with the exception of this series, I don't do episodes planning to tie everything all into each other. I don't do episodes saying, ah, I'm going to do an episode on March 1st that has to do with this. And it is, in fact, going to tie into what I talk about on the 20th. I ain't that bright. <laughs> I'm, I'm bright, but I, I promise you, it's just, again, when you look at, like, the bigger picture and you really step back and you take a look, you kind of have this moment where you're like, oh, snaps. This this is not some rigged game where things just kind of happen against American people and we have no idea how it happens or we have no idea how Americans consistently don't get what they want or we have no idea how when my politicians never rec uh, uh, support the interests or vote in the interests of the American people. It all ties into each other. It's, it doesn't just happen. But anywho... When you consider some of the recent episodes that I've done, um, there were there were kind of two themes that I actually talked about both of these themes in several issues. One was about learning lessons. I had this motto or kind of this life outlook that I, I, I really consistently have on a personal level and a professional level. And it's just that in life, it's about learning lessons. I think of life as like this big classroom where you, if, if you're bright, you're consistently learning, right? Like I mentioned before, and I tell my team all the time, I don't care that you make mistakes. What I care about is that we can rectify the mistake if it's super serious. But I think more important than that, I care about if you learn from your mistake. Because if you learn from your mistake, chances are you won't make it again. Uh, and I'm not of the mind that uh, you learn by not making mistakes. Now, the exception to that would be like if you observe other people's mistakes or, you know, if you kind of just kind of gather knowledge. But for the most part, most people need to actually make a few mistakes, right? And I think in life we do ourselves or if you have children, I think you do them a disservice by not allowing them to make mistakes. Because one, it shows you, does this person have the capacity to learn? Do they have the will to learn? Uh, quick little tangent, um, and I'm not gonna go very far with this. One of the things that 
at the management level, my team and I have been having is, you know, has been around can't do versus won't do, right? Are you dealing with someone who legitimately can't do something? Maybe they don't know how to do it. They don't have the skills. They don't have the resources. Whatever. Or are you dealing with someone who they can do it, but they just don't want to do it? Those two people are two very different people. The output from those two people are going to be very, very different. And how you have to react to handle and manage those people are worlds apart, right? But anywho, again, coming back from a tangent, I'm reeling myself back in here. So we talked about learning lessons and I talked about it with Joe Biden uh, and how he had to learn lessons from what the Trump administration did. Um, and then I also talked about learning lessons in relation to Democrats as a whole and specifically how they have to learn that they can't just be the party of capitulation. It has gotten them utterly nowhere, right? And it's actually kind of uh, interesting when you look at the two. Biden, the way that these two groups or these two uh, parties are learning should be different. Biden, he should be learning from what someone else did, what the Trump administration did. The Democrats, they need to learn from their own dang mistakes. Again, I'm coming to the negotiation table. I'm a Democrat. Want my draws? Want my, you know, the person hasn't even told me what they want. You want my shirt? You want my, my shoes? You want, I'll cut off my hair and give it to you. You want me to give you some blood, right? You want my sales? Like, that's what the Democrats have always come to the table doing. Before the other party even says, they're like, they're just ready to just throw their whole bodies on the table. Oh, take me. <laughs> you're like, do you not know? I understand you're the party of the people, but the people ain't that dumb right? That is not how you negotiate. So we talked about lessons. Another thing that I also talked about in, in recent episodes was reconciliation. I'm going to talk about reconciliation a little bit later, but I do want to say this. This letter that I mentioned that these 10 Republicans sent out, which hopefully you again at least know one of them. If you don't, you need to listen to my podcast every episode to get you some knowledge. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. So uh, I just totally lost my train of thought. So, um, so on the same day that these Republicans, on the same day that they sent out the letter to President Biden, on the other side, it looked as if Democrats learned their lesson. What am I talking about? Again, Democrats had been the party of, I must capitulate, I must throw myself, sacrifice my soul, lay on the table and tell you to take me, right? And I don't even know what you want out of the negotiation. But what they did on the same day that these Republicans sent that letter, the Democratic leadership, they made it clear that they were going to help the American people without support from the Republican Party, or at least attempted support via the N-word, right? They said, we know what we have been through when it comes to negotiations with you guys. We're not doing it. Now, to be fair, I think a lot of uh, anger was not just around that. It was around the fact that Democrats felt some sort of way 
or to say some kind of way, I don't know if that's, you know, uh, Democrats felt negatively <laughs> about um, the president taking a meeting with them, the Republicans, before them, the Democrats. It's like, we put you in here. Oh, hell no. How are you going to go over there and talk to the, right? There was, you even heard this mentioned on the news a few times, right? And so I think that considering that some people, some groups were fairly, especially progressives, they were really vocal about it. I think it would be disingenuous to uh, not consider that as part of their reasoning, not the, the totality of the reasoning, but uh, as as part of their reasoning to decide to say, screw you, we're doing this without you. And I'm pretty sure that the way that they probably were feeling, if they could have found a way to do it without Biden, they probably would have. <laughs> right. So just making that kind of clear. Now, there's somebody who I really haven't talked about who um kind of want to mention here for a second. The American Rescue Plan, again, that $1.9 trillion plan, it immediately, and I mean immediately, had the support of our new Treasury Secretary. And if I may, I would like to note that I am so glad that Steve Mnuchin is gone. Is he gone? Yes, he is gone, right? I am so, so, so glad. Now, our new Treasury Secretary, her name is Janet Yellen. I believe she is the first woman to hold this position. So yay to her. She said a few things, first and foremost, and it's worth noting, you know, um, even though Treasury Secretaries make statements all the time, our last Treasury Secretary made a whole hell of a lot of statements that, quite frankly, he should not have made. He, you know what I mean? Like, anywho, another story for another day. But so Janet Yellen, she said that the funding, the stimulus, the money, the dollar dollar bills would help millions, 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 millions of Americans and she spoke directly to um, something that those who were opposed to this $1.9 trillion plan, uh, what they say. They say that, look, if you give all this money out, bottom line, it's going to cause mass amounts of inflation. I actually spoke about that on another episode. Go check it out. And so to that, she said, I reject it. That's not, that's, that's not true. False. Fake news. No, that ain't it, bro. Right? That's what, no, she didn't say exactly that. But in so many words, that is what she said. And, and she also said that, and this is, I think, one of the most important things. Before I tell you what she said, do you remember what we heard a lot from Mr. Mnuchin, because he ain't the Treasury Secretary anymore, so I do not have to call him that, right? He is Mr. Mnuchin. He, under him, the kind of running thought, what he talked about was full employment, the economy being back on track by when? By 2025. And people were like, oh, hell no. But listen to what Mrs. Yellen, Janet Yellen said. She said, look, if y'all get on board, and we give this stimulus package, we can look at full employment being restored 
by 2022. And in case you forgot, I know some of you, your minds might be lost and you might be thinking we're still in 2020, but newsflash, we're in 2021. So what she is effectively saying here is that if we get our stuff together by next year, bro, like this could be beautiful. It could be so beautiful. But some people are like, no, no, I, I don't accept that. This is fake news. Now, Nancy Pelosi, somebody I have talked about many times, somebody who I have shared my personal opinion about many times. Nancy Pelosi said that we can essentially expect with everything that's happened, we can expect the legislation to be signed into law by the middle of next month. Again, we've talked about this on this show several times before. One more point that I want to make about Janet Yellen is that she called for not just major stimulus checks, but she said that it is specifically those major stimulus checks that would get the economy back to a full recovery. So the key points that we need to take away is that we need stimulus checks and they need to be major. Let's talk about budget resolution and COVID relief. The Democrats, they narrowly, and I do mean narrowly, they narrowly passed a resolution that essentially allows them uh, the ability to pass our next round of stimulus relief without the Republicans. And it's through this process called reconciliation. Now, let me let me kind of clarify something here because um, I'm I'm a little frustrated, quite frankly. Um, we have been hearing since the passage of this resolution uh, that will allow for reconciliation. We've been hearing uh, a lot of disgruntled Republicans talk about how horrible it is, how anti-bipartisan it is, how basically un-American it is to use reconciliation to accomplish the goal of actually sufficiently, effectively, and efficiently addressing the American people's need for COVID-19 economic stimulus and relief. But let me make something very clear here. Reconciliation is something that Republicans, while they try and act like it's never been done before, and they express total shock and awe about it and they clutch their pearls and they're like, how dare you, right? They used it pretty recently to do what? To pass tax cuts. Tax cuts that, mind you, a majority of you probably don't benefit from at least directly. And if you do indirectly, like it's so indirect, you don't even feel it, right? (laughs) And, and, And not just with that, but they've used reconciliation many, 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 many times before. Case in point, reconciliation is not new to them. It, my friends, is very utterly true to the Republican Party. So don't believe their hype when they clutch their pearls and they like, oh my gosh, how dare you reconciliation, right? Like, no, shut up, right? You do, you do it all the time. So (laughs) anyhow, remember in part one, if you did listen to it, and if you did not, I 
highly, highly, highly encourage you to go back and take a listen to it. In part one of this series, and again, this is the second part, part one, I talked about uh, Georgia and the, you know, Senate runoffs that happened there and President Biden and the Democrats and Trump and the $2,000 checks. And we talked about, you know, the Democrats and, and Biden essentially begging Georgians to help them. They're like, please help us. Please, Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. Right. I can't sing. So I'm not going to even like try. But like they were trying to woo Georgia. Right. They were like, look at. OK, anyway, let me not even go there. So they they really, really begged Georgia to make America great again. Right. We need you to make America great again, because Georgia, with you, we can pull some gangster moves and we can make this happen for America. Why was Georgia so important? What exactly did they want to do with Georgia? Well, I'm not going to get too far into this because you should have listened on part one. And if you haven't, please go back and listen to it. Essentially, Georgia had two senators, Purdue and Loeffler. And the two of them were essentially up for re-election. And those two seats made the difference between... Mitch McConnell and the Republicans still holding the Senate, ultimately not allowing anything to get voted on, yada, yada, yada. We talked about, you know, the Grim Reaper. If you Again, if you don't know what or who I'm talking about when I talk about the Grim Reaper, yes, there is one in Congress and check out part one to find out who he is, right? Um, but those two senators were the difference between the Grim Reaper uh, and to new senators that would essentially shift control again, narrowly shift control back to the Democrats, not because the Democrats would have more senators in the actual Senate, but because it would essentially give Vice President Kamala Harris the ability to cast in, in you know, various situations if needed, a tie-breaking vote, um, which the vice president has the right and you know, the responsibility, quite frankly, to do in the Senate. And so that considered, again, not getting all wonky or rehashing part one yet again for the umpteenth time, go check it out if you haven't already done so. We saw for the, you know, uh, right up close and personal uh, why this was important for the Democrats then and why it's important now, because with the power that Kamala Harris now has, given the current 50-50 split, because Georgia was taken by two new Democrats and taken away and yanked back from the Republicans, Kamala Harris was able to uh, cast this tie-breaking vote, essentially giving final approval in the Senate for reconciliation that the Democrats wanted. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier, reconciliation is a way that a bill can be passed uh, or well, a bill related to um, the the American Rescue Plan. I'm sorry, I just totally, I, I hate when I like look away and then I totally lose my train of thought. You would think that I don't, but it's actually quite easy for, for me to lose my train of thought. But anyways, I will not look away again. So reconciliation, um, was needed because with it, again, they could 
essentially let the Republicans sit by themselves, not have to go through the whole negotiation debacles that they have constantly gone through, not just in COVID relief negotiations, but pretty much in every other negotiation that has ever happened with Republicans, right? And so, hey, reconciliation was like, you know, the key to solve the negotiation problems that Democrats have with Republicans. Stalemate would be ended. um, And quite frankly, the inaction that we saw in the 116th Congress would not be an issue for us in the 117th Congress. Assuming that, again, as we talked about in several episodes ago, I don't remember exactly which one, uh, but you have to have a situation where every Democrat agrees to fall in line in order for uh, you to utilize the powers of the vice president in the Senate. So look, here's the deal. When the resolution, right, it was passed uh, in the Senate and then it went to the House. Do you think there was any opposition there, right? This resolution that had every Democrat in the Senate and was able to pass with a tie vote from the vice president and it was sent to the house, which is controlled and has been controlled now for some time by the Democrats and, you know, the party of Nancy Pelosi. Do you think it would get to the house and have any issues and be opposed in any way, shape or form? I'll give you a minute to think about it. Well, my friends, of course, you know, any Republicans, all Republicans in the House, um, although the House is controlled by Democrats, they don't just like, it's not all Democrats, right? You had Republicans there say, hey, we oppose this. We're not going for this. But then in addition to them, there was also a Democrat named Jared Golden. Um, He was the only Democrat to buck the trend and join the Republicans in opposition to this resolution to allow for reconciliation. Uh, Now, you know, he claimed, I'm not going to get all into this, but his claim behind doing so was that he had a preference for separating this vaccine bill from really everything else instead of going through this kind of longer reconciliation process. I will say, though, um, I'm not going to get into whether I agree or that or not, but it is true that reconciliation, when compared to the normal way to pass, uh, a bill, it's 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 a lot longer. The process is longer. So he is right in that respect. Um, but he again, he has his claims that I'm not going to speak to because that's on him. Let's talk a little bit more about reconciliation. Now, I know you're probably thinking like, Brittany, you've you've like dedicated whole episodes to reconciliation. The last segment was just about the budget and the budget resolution. And then you talked about reconciliation. What in the heck else could you possibly have to say about reconciliation? Well, if you really want to go there, um, we can't talk about reconciliation without talking about um, and I promise you, this is something that I, you know, haven't talked about really. 
Um, but but there's been kind of you've probably been hearing it on the news and you know other media sources that you may be subscribed to, listening to, watching, whatever the case might be, telebeaming. Um, you've probably been hearing about this move to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. How in the heck are the two connected? What in the world does that have to do with budget reconciliation, right? Well, the simple answer to that is that some people want it to be included in the final COVID relief bill. Um, and, and the people of some also includes the president. Um, he wants it to be included, but he says that the Senate rules for the budget um, as it relates to reconciliation would actually prevent the increase from going forward. And in doing so, it would ultimately either halt or delay the next round of COVID relief, which you, if you know anything about his ambitious plans, you know, for the first hundred days of his administration, let alone the addressing of the COVID pandemic crisis, um, you know that anything that, you know, would halt or delay, uh, you know, either of those two things would be like a major, ah, right? Um, let me tell you where I personally fall on this. Do I think that the federal minimum wage as it currently stands is acceptable? No. Do I think that the federal minimum wage should be increased? Yes. Do I think it should be increased to at least $15 per hour, regardless of uh, one's location? Yes. Do I think that it should happen during the Biden administration? Absolutely. Do I think that raising the federal minimum wage to $15 per hour uh, is something that should be done right now tied to our next round of COVID relief? Absolutely not. What? Yes. Let me tell you. And again, this is just my, this is not the official, you know, stand of our organization. This is Brittany, Brittany's personal opinion. Um, again, all of those things remain true, right? I, I think that it needs to go up. I think it needs to go up soon. I just don't think right now, uh, not because I don't think it's a problem, but because at this time, where businesses are barely surviving. Not all you have, and I'm, I'm not naive. I know that there are whole businesses and whole industries that have made record profits at this time, right? The, the, the pandemic has been pretty pleasing and forgiving to them, unlike the rest of Americans. Um, I do think that that is not the case for a majority of businesses here in the United States. Uh, I do not think that you can 
operate in a way that will please everybody. That includes people and it also extends to businesses, right? Um, businesses are not all on the same page. They're not on the same industry. They don't all have the same goals. They don't all have the same resources, so on and so forth. So there are going to be some winners and there are going to be some losers. But I do think the majority is what needs to be um, of more paramount importance when kind of considering problems and solutions. That said, a majority of businesses are struggling. A majority of businesses cannot afford, they can't even operate in this in this sense because a lot of places are still under lockdowns or the lockdowns have been lifted. They have some sort of capacity limitations or something of the sort, or even if they're still fully functional, uh, their customers, right? An important part of the create uh, equation, something we've talked about many, many, many times in this, in this uh, capitalistic society, in the society in which we live, you cannot separate the business from the consumer. They are intertwined in ways that go beyond just helping one without helping the other. But that said, Businesses cannot, a majority, not all, some can go up to $15 an hour. Now, mind you, I'm not going to get into the conversation about automation like we've seen, for instance, with fast food industries, right? Where they can just, you know, hey, you want to raise the standards, we want to raise the wages that we have to pay? That's fine. We'll just kick out our cashiers and take on you know, robots, you know, I'm not getting into that argument. I'm simply saying most businesses, regardless of if automation is a part of their game, long-term or short-term, most businesses in this current environment cannot withstand wage hikes. We work with a bunch of independent contractors. I can tell you now, if they were employees, and at this time, if wages went up, we couldn't do it. This would be the last you'd ever hear from me. Matter of fact, you probably would have never heard from me, right? <laughs> right? I'm, I'm just being honest here. Um, but again, yes, there are businesses. There are businesses that can afford, afford to pay $30 an hour. Hell, some can pay $50 an hour and it still wouldn't hey, it, it wouldn't mean a thing, right? But that's not the case for a majority of Americans. So speaking to this and then moving on from this point, personally, I do think that once we get at least consumers to a better position where they are more participatory in our economy on a large scale, and they're able to do it in a way that doesn't require as much uh, assistance from the go uh, the federal government as it does right now. Absolutely, take the federal minimum wage up. But what will happen if we, as is currently the plan, what will happen? In my opinion. If we have the $15 minimum wage attached to the next stimulus package, 
and it passes even though the federal minimum wage is set to kind of incline up transition upwards until 2025 when it hits that mark it's not gonna like as soon as it passes mandate everyone makes 15 dollars an hour it's not gonna work like that but if you know how businesses work and this is why i place a lot of i put more responsibility before i say this i put more responsibility um you have a lot of politicians who say you know American family should have planned for the pandemic. Personal responsibility. You want to tell the single mom with two, three, four, five, eight, and her business ain't none of my business, right? However many kids she has, um, you want to tell her she should have planned for a pandemic, but businesses, and you can't help her, mind you. She, you, you don't even want to give her six hundred dollars, but then it comes to the business. They have business plans, forecasts. They should be having risk assessments, all this other stuff that standard businesses have, but you want to bail them out, no problem. Anyways, I say all that because businesses operate in a different way. And because they operate in a different way, even though this, this if it passes, this federal minimum wage implementation of $15 an hour, even though it won't be until 2025, businesses are not going to wait till 2025 to start planning for it to happen. They may act like they just didn't plan for any sort of catastrophe or loss in revenue. Even if they, I'll, I'll say that a majority of businesses, ours included, didn't plan for a pandemic. But you should have at least prepared for some sort of loss in revenue. Like you seriously thought it was just going to go up and up. And like the experience in and of, in business in and of itself should show you it's not a steady incline. Right? Who's a, who, who does that? Who, who believes that? What kind of stuff are you smoking? But businesses are not going to wait until 2025. Expect the larger the business, you would think, well, they can handle this. You know, it's not going. They're going to be the first ones to immediately slash jobs. <laughs> let me, let me. <laughs> you know, we talk about how the American productivity has just gone up, right? And we always talk about that in relation to federal minimum wage, right? Worker productivity is going up. Why haven't wages? Do you know why productivity is going up? Because people are having to do more and more and more and more and more because other people are getting fired. And we're going to continue to perpetuate that if we allow $15 as a minimum wage to be tacked on to this COVID relief package, even though it won't start until 2025. Now, on the other side of this, the argument made by um, a politician, you if you don't know, you've been under a rock, Bernie Sanders. Uh, the argument made by him and other people is that, you know, if you have a higher wage, uh, it would reduce the amount of federal assistance for low-income individuals, and it would increase their taxable income. And not only, you know, does this mean that it would ultimately help the economy, and so it's actually good to do it at this time because of that, but then we can actually justify tacking it on to the COVID relief bill because it would meet the Senate parliamentarians' requirement that 
any reconciliation measure have an effect on the federal budget? So then I asked the question, where are we today? Well, for starters, the House is expected to vote on a stimulus package at some point this week. Let me let me make something clear again. The House is voting on a stimulus package because I know a lot of you are well-educated and you understand how a bill becomes a law. Um, and so you know that it takes the House and the Senate. And you probably heard me earlier say that the Senate passed something and it went to the House. The Senate passed reconciliation. They didn't actually pass the stimulus bill. So even if the House votes on it this week, it still has to go to the Senate. Things that have to do with the budget have to originate. They can't, by the Constitution, they can't originate in the Senate. They have to originate in the House. Think of it like this. The Senate passed the rules. But then after they pass the rules, it's the House that hits go and makes the action happen for things related to the budget. Okay. So what's actually in this package, this, this stimulus package? Because... For the longest time, we didn't actually have a package. You know, we had a plan that was kind of written down on a sticky note and, you know, pinned on, the, you know, Biden's wall at the White House. No, I'm just totally joking. But it wasn't anything concrete. Like I said, this is now something that's concrete. As of, I believe, the 19th, we have, like, the actual bill, the bill, 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 bill. Like, right? It is the bill that's in Capitol Hill. It's not or on Capitol. How does this thing? I'm just a bill. Anyways, uh, so long ago, right? Do the kids even still listen to that? Um, so anyhow, we, we have the text. We know it's in the package. What's in there is the increase in the federal minimum wage. Well, let me say that again. What's in there is the increase in the federal minimum wage, direct checks for Americans, only for Americans that make $75,000 a year or less. There is an extension of the unemployment benefits, and it also takes the federal uh, program that they have, the additional money from 300 to 400 per week. Then there's also money for small businesses. I've been rambling on long enough, not just in this segment, but in this episode. So let me tie all of this in together and let me say something in close. I have to, have to, have to, have to, have to make this very important point. I'd be doing you a disservice. I'd be doing myself a disservice because I would have wasted all this time rambling for no good reason, no good earthly reason, right? If I don't make this clear. Because as I just told you, the federal minimum wage increase to $15 an hour was included in the bill that we now have that will be voted on. The reality is we do not know if a Senate parliamentarian or the Senate parliamentarian rather um, is going to allow the Senate rules uh to essentially work in this instance. Um, we don't know if budget re reconciliation is going to prevent 
this bill from going forward. Reconciliation is what we're using. That was set in stone by the Senate. Now the House hit go and they're supposed to vote on it and kick it back to the Senate. But the Senate has to say again, does this meet our rules? And remember, the rule is any reconciliation measure has to have an effect on the federal budget. So will a parliamentarian look at it from Bernie Sanders' point of view and look at the budget? Will they kind of look at it from my view um, and other people's views? Will they take into consideration something else we didn't talk about that I believe we shared it on our social media and maybe I'll talk about it another day depending on how things go. Um, will, will the parliamentarian take into consideration the CBO report what CBO is Congressional Budget Office, by the way. Um, and, and that report essentially did not look very favorable on this federal uh, federal minimum wage increase. Not at all. If anything, reading it would make you not want to take up the federal minimum wage. Um, but I bring this up because the cold hard fact is it's this is no longer just a debate like, okay, will the parliamentarian do it? Like it is now real life having an impact on the lives of the Americans because, or the American people, because in the event that the parliamentarian does not look favorable on this addition to the bill, the $15 federal minimum wage increase, what will happen without question is that the COVID relief that the American people so desperately need is going to be halted and come to this grinding halt despite the gangster move that the Democrats and Biden pulled off with Georgia and all this good juicy stuff that we've been talking about over the last few, few episodes. Um, or it may just be delayed, not completely halted, but instead of getting relief next month, people may not get relief into the summer. I'm not saying that's the case, but that may be the case since we're taking this bet. The Democrats took a bet on Georgia. They won that bet. Now they're taking a bet again with COVID relief. Are they a little bit too ambitious here? I'm not saying I dis... Well, <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I didn't disagree because I, I've made it very clear. I quite frankly don't think that they should have personally. This is Brittany's personal opinion. I don't think that they should have added the $15 despite how I feel about it, despite the fact that I think it is of the utmost of necessity for many Americans and not just individual Americans, but families, communities, and the economy at large completely get it. But now is not the time. This is my personal opinion. So the question becomes, is COVID relief going to be delayed or halted? And I think, no, I know. We are going to have to wait and see. Even if the House votes this week, Again, we've got to wait for it to be kicked back to the Senate. So we probably won't know until next week how this is going to go. So keep your eyes and ears open because uh, this is some important stuff right now. So I want to tell you about our email list. Our email list is one of the best ways that you can stay in touch with us. If you look in the description box of this episode, 
you'll find a link to join our email list. By joining our email list, you'll get access to updates about policy and politicians that we support and oppose. When we have events, you'll get to know about those events via emails. And we'll just generally share news with you. We won't spam your inbox, I promise. Uh, And also, we inform you of our newest podcast episodes, which come out Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, by the way. Anyhow, joining the email list is not only easy, but it is absolutely free. Look in the description box of this episode. You'll find the link. Click it. Give us your name and your email. That's all we need. And you'll be in. So, please... Join our email list and connect with us today. All right, thanks. Today's resource that I am sharing is a resource that we have uh, mentioned and promoted several times on our podcast before. Um, What it is, is an official government tool that will help you confirm if the IRS and Treasury have sent your economic impact payment, your stimulus check. Um, But in addition to that, it will also let you know the method by which they sent it, how they sent it, if they sent a uh, direct deposit, and if you didn't get it, maybe it went into a wrong account. Um, And if that's the case, it will also inform you of what will happen. Um, Maybe they mailed you a check and it's in the mail and you, you know, your mail is just, who knows, right? Um, But if I don't have that information, but this tool does, it again is an official government's tool uh, to get access to it. If you want, if you look in the description box of this episode, you will find a link to join our mailing list. We will not spam you. Um, our mailing list is an awesome way to keep in contact with us, uh, but most importantly, it's an awesome way to get access to this tool. It's great, again, for you if you have not yet received your, received your economic impact payment, uh, as well as other people. It might be something that you want to get access to, so that way you can share it with them. Um, the resource also does mention um, the other kind of option that some people are going to um, have when it comes to actually getting your economic impact payment. Some people will get checks, some people will get direct deposits, some people who are eligible will end up having to utilize a tax credit. Uh, If you want more information, not just on um, how you'll get your payment, if you'll get it when, uh, you also, you know, might want to get information on this tax credit, uh, which this tool will also provide you information on. So again, if you look in the description box below, click the link to join our email list. You'll just have to give us your name, your email address. And as soon as you sign up, we'll get you a welcome email. And then like within a few seconds after that, you'll get the email with access to this resource. Uh, So you can find that in the description box below. I hope the resource is of benefit to you or someone you know. Alright, so that is our show for today, Monday, February 22nd, 2021. It was 
part two of a five-part series, so two down, three to go. Uh, and during this series, if you forgot, we're going to be going into uh, some nitty-gritty details about the American Rescue Plan. Um, today we talked about the N-word and the B-word, and I hope you listen to the podcast so you can know what I mean when we talk about the N-word and B-word. That is negotiations and budgets two things that quite frankly when most people talk about them um they tend to put people to sleep right unless you are actually in the negotiations and you're like in there and it's like again two people across the table eye to eye you know looking staring down like unless you're in that excitement typically negotiations and budgets bore people and put people to sleep and i really hope that this episode despite talking about two things that frequently put people to sleep i hope it didn't bore you i hope it didn't put you to sleep uh because you know when it comes to how the negotiations have been conducted um i think a lot of people may be tempted to have the same kind of emotional feelings based on what we have been dragged through over the last year um but consider that maybe you shouldn't be feeling that same type of way, right? Um, Because when there was the opportunity for Republicans, those tend to kind of pull America back to the same beat town we had last year, Democrats, Democratic leadership that same day said, nah, bro, we ain't having this. And they went right to reconciliation, something that changes the game. Um, And so we talked about reconciliation. We talked about the resolution that allowed for reconciliation. Again, I hope it wasn't too wonky. I hope you understand the difference between the two. The resolution led to the reconciliation. The reconciliation will lead to the COVID relief. Three R's. Resolution, reconciliation, relief. All right? So, thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back next Wednesday. And in the meantime, in between time, please be safe. COVID is real. It is still going on. Um, I know the numbers are going down, but they are not down enough. So, please be safe. Wear your mask. Take you hand sanitizer wherever you go. I don't care if you go across the street get the hand you go to check the mail i hope you take your hands in do you know how many people touch that mailbox as far as i'm concerned everybody could be a covid killer so protect yourself because this stuff is serious enjoy the rest of your day and most of all if you have a hazmat suit break that sucker out
pressure. 